is Ryan Longfield. My wife and I, Suki Longfield, in the, in the front row here as senior pastors of the church. So if you're, if you're new, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, and we're in chapter 13. And uh, so welcome along for the ride. If you guys uh, have any interest in hearing the sermons that have been passed, or if you miss a week, we have a podcast. Um, there's an Ark Ministries podcast um, that, uh, that's pretty cool. We get, the, we get them up immediately after the, the service, and uh, they get some good action. So if you want to catch up, you can go there. I will do a decent job of catching you up today, because we are in the final passage of Matthew 13. And this is a portion of Scripture that will be blocked off. I'm not going on to Matthew 14. Some of you are chuckling. We're in the last part of Matthew 13. There's a little bit uh, left to cover here. And, uh, and there's this block of scripture that we're going we're gonna to land this plane today. So uh, I'll start with reading the passage, and then we'll ju- jump right in. Verse uh, 53 is where we're starting. So it says this. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. So what we've seen right, right before us, uh, right before this in Matthew chapter 13, is a long string of parables where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And so he's telling the world about the kingdom of God. And the reason why he calls it the kingdom of heaven in Matthew is because the Jews uh, refused to utter, utter the name of God out of reverence and honor. So in every place where they would normally use the kingdom of God, in all of the other synoptic gospels, they use the kingdom of heaven in Matthew um, out of respect for that. So the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's a big teaching about what Jesus is all about. And so it says, after he finishes these parables, he moves on from there. And he leaves there, and he comes into his hometown. He begins teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom? And these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers Joseph, or James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Um, I'm sorry, I just said that from memory. That's not at all what it says. A prophet is not with honor (laughs) except in his own town and his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. This passage kind of like grieves me at the end there, right? Like you have the Son of God on earth, and he's going around bringing his kingdom. And his miracles are... His miracles are interesting in and of themselves, but what his miracles really represent is the advancement in the coming of his kingdom. So we're not just talking about, oh yeah, it's cool that he healed some people. It's like his healing, his casting out of demons, the miracles that he was doing were the the physical manifestation, the physical signs of his kingdom advancing in a certain location. And so when we look at this and it says that they took offense to him and they gave him no honor... And because of that, his kingdom wasn't advancing in his own hometown. There's just a part of me that grieves uh, the reality of that. That the Son of God uh, and, and the advancement of his kingdom is shut down because they get offended at him. Now what I mentioned last week was that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11 and at the end of Matthew chapter 13, there's a very similar statement. 
In the beginning of Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, who's somebody who his entire life, I don't know his entire life, but we've seen his life where his ministry is all about blazing the way for the Messiah. He believes Jesus to be the Messiah. He spends his whole life basically paving the way for Jesus to come. And then he has this hard moment where he's sitting in prison, and this alternate story, this other narrative starts to enter his mind. Is Jesus really the Messiah? So he's got these two narratives going on. One is like he spent his whole life blazing the way for Jesus, and then this other narrative enters his mind and in a time where he gets offended, clearly because he's sitting in prison. And he's like, how do I reconcile these things? I have the belief that this guy's the king of the earth, and he's blazing the way for his kingdom to come on the earth, and then I, I'm sitting here in prison. Those two things don't reconcile for me. I don't understand how those two things come together. And because of that offense that stirred in his heart, there's two narratives that exist in, in John the Baptist's mind. And he sends a note to Jesus, and he says, are you the one that we've been waiting for, or should we look for another? So it's like, oh no, John, like, don't entertain this other narrative, right? Jesus sends back a report and says, I've been healing, I've been casting out demons, I've been feeding the sick, I've been ministering to the poor. Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Blessed is he who's not offended by me. And then we get to the end of Matthew 13, and these are bookends. Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 13, and everything in between has to do with this idea of offense with God. And here we see he's in his own hometown. And what's the dual narrative that's created here? First, they come into this, Jesus comes into the town, he starts doing amazing things, and he starts to teach, and the people are like, what is going on with this? This is mind-blowing stuff. Like, this guy comes in, and he's, he's healing people who are sick, and when he teaches, my insides explode. I can feel the wisdom, right? Like, you can just feel the power of Jesus as he's teaching in the synagogues, and they're there, and they can feel it, and they're like, this is real. This is amazing. This person is special. This guy's from God. And then all of a sudden, wait a second, the alternate narrative creeps in. Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the guy that I played kickball with growing up? Who like skinned his knee in my dad's backyard? Like, isn't this the one whose brothers are right over here? Like, this guy's not special. This, this person's just like you and me. And it says there that they take offense at him. And the thing that I wanted to talk to us about today is the creation of two narratives that is constantly happening in our life. This is constantly happening in our life. This whole thing is about faith. And the hard part about faith is that there's always two narratives that we can look to. There's God's narrative, where Jesus, the Son of God, is preaching in this village. It's like, whoa, the Messiah is here. But it seems like God always allows for a second narrative to exist. It doesn't seem happenstance. It doesn't seem like, oh, it's just a reality of the fall. There's two narratives that exist. Oh, I can get offended with Jesus here because, you know, I grew up with him and, you know, he slept over at my house and now look at him. I, I know this person. I know that. There, there's easily two narratives there that can exist for the people. I get it, right? Like, I could totally get it. What if there was someone from your hometown that started doing awesome stuff? You'd be like, no, that's Johnny, right? Like, it, it makes sense. And the thing that you'll notice is if you look throughout Jesus' ministry, 
he almost always allows for two narratives to exist. There's always a choice with God. And in this one, what's crazy about it is, if we unpack this passage a little bit, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And then it says he didn't do many miracles there because of the lack of faith. So check this out. So they start looking at his past, and it leads them to drop their honor for him. Right? So they say, okay, well, you know, this is just Jesus. This is the guy we grew up with. So their honor level drops. And because their honor level drops, the miracles drop too. What just happened right there? The second narrative was confirmed for many of them. Right? The second narrative, the false narrative, was just, be, was just confirmed in a lot of ways because they're like, oh, this guy's not that special. And then Jesus actually becomes, in action, not that special in that town. And so there's like a confirmation of their false belief. And I was think, as I was thinking about this, I'm like, this is so true in our lives. This is totally how it works. In other words, if you're looking for a reason to not believe— you will find it. If you're looking for a reason to not have faith in God's promises and His goodness, you'll find it. And I actually, this part, that was biblical. We're moving into like Ryan's point of view that like may or may not be biblical. <laughs> this is opinion. I think that God kind of does that. You know, in fact, if we think about what we just read in Matthew 13, there was a passage that said this. Those who have, they'll receive more. Those who don't have, even what they have will be taken away. Is that not exactly what's going on in this passage? The people that have, they have so much honor for Jesus, they're leaned in, and all of a sudden, their life is filled with miracles. There's stuff popping up around them, they're like, whoa, like... God is on fire around me. This is incredible. The Messiah is here. And then there's this other contingent that somehow they, this, this second narrative gets introduced and they grab hold of it and then there's a confirming of it as no miracles happen in that town. And so if we, if we launch out of this, it's not just this kind of self-fulfilling thing in the story of Jesus. I'd like to take us back all the way to the story in Genesis. The very beginning. So let's, talk, let's look at this before the fall and, and from the very beginning. So this is Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say to you, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat, tree, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, we must not eat for the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from, from that tree, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom— she took and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. 
This idea of trust and choice based on trust, which narrative are you going to believe, is present from the very beginning. There's two trees in the garden. And God didn't need the tree to look like a ripe, big, red apple. There's no evidence that it's an apple. I'm just making that up. But she says it was pleasing to the eye. God did not need to make that pleasing to the eye. He could have made that thing look vile. He could have made it look disgusting. And you had to work really hard to believe that this thing was good. But he actually doesn't do that. He puts a good-looking fruit where there's like kind of some sense in it. Like, yeah, that, that thing does look really good. And, you know, like this serpent looks wise. Maybe he ate of that. You know, like, you can, you can start to piece together the story where it's like, they have need for nothing. They have need for nothing. But God is so interested in this idea of trust as a central thing in his story from the beginning to the end. It's all about faith through and through, and the, the fruit is good-looking. It's right in the middle of the garden, and the enemy comes in and he makes something that did feel very simple feel very confusing. Isn't that how it goes when you're dealing with God's narrative? Like you're doing good, right? You're on the path and you're like, I believe, like I'm living a life of trust before my Lord. And then something comes in that just isn't exactly right in line with that. And then the enemy just makes it all confusing. Are you sure that, the, that God's ways are the best ways? Are you sure that you can trust him in all these areas? Are you sure that this is the best path? Because it feels like you're missing out. He does the little like FOMO thing, right? There's a big, there's a fear of missing out here. Like, don't you want wisdom? Isn't wisdom good? Isn't God wisdom? Doesn't God have wisdom? Don't you want to be like God? Didn't he create you in his image? Like there's a storyline that easily lines up with this stuff. And what, the, what was very simple before of like, wow, look at how good God is. He gave me all of this stuff to do with whatever I want. And I get to rule and I get to eat of all these trees and it's all amazing. And then it gets really complicated because something enters in and the enemy just twists it a little bit. And then he's like, actually, that's a good point. Maybe I should take things into my own hands. Maybe I should just like, just try to do it on my own effort because it doesn't feel like this one's working out. This week I had a pretty tough week um, at work. Um, see, <clears throat> I'm committed, I have been committed to doing work the right way. And in my opinion, what doing corporate America the right way is, is not putting my trust in my own abilities to apply myself in the right way and see myself elevated through the organization and not work so hard in there to earn promotion and to not do everything the world does but just do it better and get promoted and promoted and next thing I can use my influence for the kingdom, right? Like, there's, a, there's an easy way that the Christian version of corporate America can just look like a better version of what they do. But you're wiser because you have God and you have better character. And so, like, you know, like, you just do it better. That is not it. That is not it. 
And I think one of the things that's been great about pastoring this church while working in corporate America is that I don't have the ability to work 60-hour weeks like everybody else who's running and gunning to be excellent in the work world. And so it's forced this dependence upon God where I go in and I'm like, Lord, I'm going to do my absolute best to serve my boss. I'm going to do it for your glory, and I'm going to follow you in this place. If you tell me to quit tomorrow, I'll quit tomorrow. If you tell me to take a demotion, I'll take a demotion. If you tell me to do whatever, like, I'm committed to following your ways. And what I've been doing to the best of my ability in the corporate work world is staying surrendered to God and doing my best to give excellence, but to not give my life to work. To not seek satisfaction in my job and the promotion and the recognition that I get there. To not work for the almighty dollar and not know it and then realize that my insides are greedy and interwoven with the deception of riches, right? And so I'm constantly trying to steward myself and I'm constantly saying like, okay, are you being honest to who you are? Are you, being, are you following Jesus in this context? And, and I feel like I've been doing pretty well. <clears throat> Good narrative. <laughs> Tough week. Um, somebody in my workplace who does not do work that way, actually, in a large way, does it exactly like the other one, where it's like going after it hardcore, everything bows down to this pursuit, and I'm going to get there no matter what, and I'm going to have full ambition and all that stuff, got this promotion that I've been waiting for. And it felt like a big old slug in my gut. It was announced in the team meeting, so I was like, hey, celebrate, like this thing's going on. And it felt, this is what it felt like. Psalm 73. <laughs> Don't you love David when he's in a bad mood? Sometimes I love David when he's in a bad mood. I'm like, yes, David, you feel me. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Check this out. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. It was one of those moments where I'm glad David had a bad day, too. I was just like, God, I look around me, and it feels like this way that is honestly detestable works. It, it works. It's working right now. I see the evidence for it. Your ways don't work. Right? I've been doing it your way. What's going on over here? And this is like the classic introduction of a second narrative. I'm doing great. I've got my eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm walking the walk that I want to walk, where I, at the end of the line, I'll stand before Jesus, and I feel like, I'll be like, I did the best I could possibly do in that setting. You know, like I surrendered. And then this thing comes along, and it's like, wow, that, 
maybe, maybe it would be better if I just took kind of, not aggressive control over it, but maybe if I just worked more hours. Right? It's not like throw away your faith, you know, whatever. It's like, well, maybe I just need to work more hours. And, and you guys know me well enough to know that I work hard and I'm a big proponent of working hard, so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more hours. I'm talking about on top of excellence type of thing. Like, that represents taking things into control for me, right? That represents, that's where I overstep and I start to grab control and I go, well, Lord, in your way, it didn't really work. In my way, maybe it will. And it's the introduction of a second narrative. There's reason to get offended. There's reason to say God's ways don't work. There's reasons to sound just like David. They've got no struggles. It just works. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's the second narrative. And so this is one of those moments where I'm like, what do I do with this? And I called this good friend of mine. And after kind of hearing me talk and worshiping for a while, before I called my friend, I, I got to this place where we were talking, and he's like, he said this, and it was like so impactful. He said, we've chosen to do, do life differently. He's like, we've chosen to do life differently. And he's like, and that's it. That's our choice. Like, we're doing life differently. And it was just one of those moments where I was just like, yes. And, and, and the second narrative got smashed in the head because actually part of Psalm 73, you know where David ends with this? Is he says, I was all messed up inside until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and then I remembered their fate at the end of the line. And it was like panning out and you're like, what is any of this stuff good for anyway? Oh great, so I get promoted six times, I'm the CEO of the company and I'm making millions and millions of dollars. Who cares at the end of the line if it's not all for God? Like we've chosen a different path and that different path is all about trust. But the thing that's crazy about this, this Matthew passage and this Genesis passage is even pre-fall, there was two options. And the second option looked good. And there was a, like, if there was ever a time to trust God, was it not before there was anything in the world that they lacked, they lacked for nothing? And then there's this, like, the one thing that they don't have leads them to not trust God. They literally have abundance in almost every area except for the area of wisdom. Right? Like, it's true. Like, it's the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's just say there's knowledge of good and evil here. It's the one thing that they don't have. And it leads them to be discontent. Their discontentment leads them to not trust God, and it leads them to make a stupid choice because of one area. And is this not like us? Is this not like us? Things are thriving in every area of life, and then it's like, oh, I don't get my promotion on time. <laughs> what? And that's going to, like... Give me a question whether I want to take my life into my own hands and, like, pursue this. No. No. But it's so easy for discontentment to creep in there and create a second narrative. 
well, is God really, the, is God really worth providing? Like, does he really do it in this area? Can you really trust him in that area? And the lie is almost always the same. It's like, there's a better way in which you're not dependent upon God, and you're missing out by doing it his way. I was watching, um, I was watching videos this week on, uh, on like creationism, origin of the world type stuff. Does anybody else geek out on like creationism or like origin of the world type stuff? I love this stuff. <laughs> um, you know, I was watching, I was watching this, this video on the eyeball. And it was comparing the eyeball to the most advanced camera that we have on earth. And it was showing how the most advanced camera on earth pales in pitiful comparison to the eyeball and how amazing it is. And just like the underlying complexity and, and brilliance that exists in the eyeball. And then there was another one. I kid you not, you guys have probably heard me do this one where I'm like, sometimes I trip out about just squeezing my hand. Do you guys remember I said that before? There was a video on the human hand that was awesome. And basically, it was talking about how um, the length of the first part of your finger and then the length of the second bone and then the length of the third bone are perfectly designed for leverage and to be able to like grasp things with strength but also have like a certain amount of dexterity. Like, it's just, it's unbelievably perfectly designed. And then all of the muscles exist up in the forearm, so that it can be really strong, but really thin down here, so that you can grab, like, tiny things. But none of that would exist if the muscles weren't up here in your forearms that allow you to, like, grab stuff and really do that. And so it's, like, all of these different areas where there's just ridiculous complexity. And then it started talking about the Earth. And it talked about how if the Earth wasn't tilted exactly to the, to the degree that it is exactly, then none of the natural conditions for life would exist. And if the moon was just a touch closer, then we'd have bigger waves and it would destroy the way the earth, the, the ecosystem that's balanced. If the sun was just a fraction of a, you, you guys get this, there's just ridiculous complexity wherever you look. And then they did this video where they go inside of a, a one human cell, or one cell, period. And there's a strand of DNA. And they talked about how DNA, or I'm sorry, the human cell, I'm sorry, uh, the human cell is, I, I want to get the, the language that they used right on this because it like impacted me. <laughs> okay, DNA. DNA is by far the densest storage of information mechanism in the universe. By far. Like our biggest microcomputers don't even come close to DNA. And what they said is, they said, if you took the p a pin, like the, you know how there's like a round spot on top of a pin? You know what I'm talking about? If you took that and like packed that filled with DNA, it would be books stacked to the moon like 50, you know, whatever, it doesn't mean matter anymore, it's so much, like 50 times over full of information. And then he makes the point that a single cell in the, like all of us start in a single cell and then our bodies end up with a hundred trillion cells or so but it all comes yeah does it matter anymore a hundred trillion cells but it all comes from a single cell and in that single cell 
it knows how to go from one to a hundred trillion, but you're made up of crazy different types of cells and stuff. Like, you know, like your fingernails are different than other parts of you. So it's talking about how like, how ridiculous is it that that single cell multiplies into a hundred trillion of them and it forms this or that, right? It is staggering, mind-blowing, crazy complexity. Crazy complexity. And after watching this thing, I, I was like, you have to work so hard to be atheist. This is the second narrative. Everywhere around you, there's ridiculous complexity that exists in our universe. Crazy complexity. And no other place where you experience that kind of complexity would you ever say that that came from nothing, from random chance. You'd always say that there was intelligence behind it. Even in like the most simple things, like there's a, there's a, a great one that I've heard before, like picture this, you're strolling down the beach and we'll just say it's a deserted island and you come and there's a watch in the beach, a really nice watch. What's it called when they have multiple dials on there? Yeah, one of those. More complex than the standard just boring one. It's there, and you go and you reach down and you pick it up. And you go, whoa, that's a watch. That's awesome. At any point in your conclusion, do you think that the right kind of waves hit up, hit the rocks in just the right way, created a, some kind of thing that happens, and then a gear was formed out of that? <laughs> And then another wave came and created another gear, and that one magically came together. Like, of course not. Of course not. There's intelligence in this, wa in this watch that you go and you pick it up and you're like, there's a crazy amount of intelligence in this thing. Like, there's no way that this happened by happenstance. But do you understand that going from no life to even the single, most simplest cell is a zillion times more complex than that watch in the sand? A zillion times. But somehow we like, you know, like, we're fragile humans. Like somehow enough gets in there and all of a sudden you can explain all of this away by random chance? Like you gotta work hard, but that's another narrative. It's another narrative. It exists out there, and it can allure you away when you're offended. They exist everywhere. Just on the geeking out on the creation stuff. Another one that I heard, like the watch one, is, is Mount Rushmore, right? You're strolling along, you're going for a hike with your family, you look up and you're like, whoa, that looks exactly like the four presidents, <laughs> right? Do you ever at any moment stop and be like, can you believe what the wind and the waves did to that side of the mountain? And the level of complexity in Mount Rushmore is zero compared to what we're talking about. Zero. You have to work hard, but sometimes we do, right? And so let me just, let me just tell you how my story ends, and then I'll, and then I'll uh, give you a little challenge on this one. And we'll worship again, but 
So with my story, uh, I ended up calling that friend. We prayed together, and just so much weight lifted off me to the point where I was just like, oh, God, like, thank you for people like this in my life where I can call and I can be encouraged. And I felt like there... I don't know if you guys have felt this way in the recent past, but there's this moment where things go from really simple to really complex. And that should be our first clue that we're going down the wrong path. Because God is really simple in his ways at the base layer, and then infinitely complex as it goes from there. But if we can't back out whatever we're going to in that God really cares about my life, God really loves the world, God's in control, and my job is to trust him. That's kind of like it almost after everything. So if whatever you're going through can't back out into one of those as like a grounds where things become simple again, not that you have everything figured out, but there's a solid ground that you're able to stand on where you're not in crisis, where you look at whatever you're looking at, then you probably need to phone a friend. <laughs> this is like, we need each other. Can we just establish that? Yeah. Like, the narratives, they were too deceptive for Eve, and they're too deceptive for you. And they're too deceptive for me. We need each other. We need spiritual leaders, and we need community, where when I'm, like, spinning out of control, I'm like, I can feel it. Things are too complex right now. All of a sudden, that whole thing about, like, just don't eat that apple, and you're going to be good, all of a sudden, that's not simple anymore. Oh, maybe I can touch it. Look, you can touch it. Maybe it was wrong. I didn't die. Right? Right when things start getting complex, boom. Phone a friend. Things just got really complex. This is what happened. And they, they go, oh, like, that's where you're believing a lie. Just like my friend did for me. This is hard for you because you're believing that the ways of the world work, and you're tempted to bail off of it and jump down that path. We don't live that way. I'm like, you're right. We don't live that way, right? It was actually like, that, like once I talked it through with my friend, I'm like, you're absolutely right. I chose a long time ago that I'm choosing the path of trust in God. I'm not jumping off for this. This is ridiculous. I'll work for the rest of my life and never experience another promotion before I do that. And all of a sudden, the simplicity of don't, don't eat the apple came back, and I was like, oh, yeah. The second narrative died. But we need each other. This solo Christian thing is dead and expired, and it's done. It doesn't work. We need each other. We need our small groups. We need to come to church. We need to worship together. Don't forsake the gathering of the believers. We need each other. And so I'm going to call us to some application stuff. Um, but I'm assuming Suki might have something that she wants to add. Yeah? Come on up. Hey, y'all. I missed you. I feel like it's been a while. I don't know where I've been. I don't know. You guys have been here. I haven't been here. Um, yeah, actually, to catch you guys up, about two weeks ago, um, I ended up going on a personal retreat to Carmel. Um, 
I don't even know how long it's been since I've been on a trip away by myself. It's been over a decade. So all you guys who are single and don't have kids, man, go on trips, because you can go on so many trips. And, and, um, and so I ended up taking um, something like 36 maybe hours, maybe a little bit, a day and a half or so away. And, um, and I was seeking the Lord because I was kind of, I've been kind of having a little bit of a rough time. I'll probably end up sharing a little bit more at another, another time. But um, one of the things that I was going, I was actually going and I was asking God to speak to me about something. And, um, and some of you guys have heard this metaphor already. I've already shared with a few of you guys. I've been, I went because, you know, let's just say my knee hurt because I had something going on. And I'm like, God, I'm going away on this trip because I want you to talk to me about my knee. Why is my knee hurting so much? It's not really my knee. This is my emotional knee, okay? And, <laughs> and, and I'm like, man, my knee's really bummed. It's, I, it, I'm really, really needing to seek you. I really want you to talk to me about my knee, God. And God, and so I go on this trip, and all these really nice, amazing archers are like sending me words and prophecies and all these things and encouragements about what God's going to be doing. And every single step of the way, I feel like God's there. And he's talking to me, and he's talking to me, and he's talking to me, and he's talking to me. But I'm like, but I don't want to talk about my knee, God. I care about my knee. And he's like, oh, let me massage your shoulder. And I'm like, no, my knee. And he's like, no, my, your shoulder. And Sean, he's a massage therapist back there. He's like, yeah, sometimes you have a problem with your knee, but you need to work on something else first. And that's exactly what God was doing. You know, and I think that a lot of this is kind of similar. What I, was, uh, what I wrote down when I was sitting there was a lot of times God can be standing right in front of you, but you can't see him. You know, and I think a lot of times you're looking, and a lot of that depends upon your perspective and whether or not there's faith or expectation of what and how you think he needs to come and meet you. And I really feel like um, that's one of the things that God was speaking to me um, while I was away, that he is. And in every single way, he's saying, like, he's standing there, and he is there. But a lot of times, because we're asking a very specific question, we want a very specific answer, we can't hear what he's actually saying. And so I feel like that's a word for somebody in this room today. And so I feel like a lot of you guys are looking for the Lord, and you're asking him questions, and he's saying a whole lot of stuff, actually. He's actually talking to you, but the thing that he's talking to you about, may, you might not see the connection because you're too busy wanting him to talk to you about your metaphorical emotional knee. <laughs> and so I think my, my encouragement is if he's trying to talk to you about your shoulder, let him talk to you about your shoulder. If he wants to talk to you about all these other things, because they, we're not a separate piece. We're all interconnected and intertwined. And so... There is purpose in it, and God is standing right before you, and he's, he wants to meet you. Let it be on his terms the way that he wants to, because he's going to be a lot better about getting to it than you will. And so that's my, your, my word of encouragement today. All right. Uh, Steve, come on up, man. So I have a couple, I have a few questions for us. Um, as we wrap this up, where in your life have the things that were once simple become very complex? Where are the things in your life that were once simple become very complex? 
Where has there been an alternate story that's been created and is tempting? What's that alternate story? What's the, what's the area where it's hard to trust God? And there's an alternate story about, man, I think things might just be a little bit better if I just took this thing into control. It's interesting how discontentment can breed alternate stories. So if there's an area of your life where you've felt a bunch of discontentment, I'd invite you to welcome the Lord into that area. And usually discontentment is broken off by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the key to a lot of different things. Thanksgiving is like this key that opens a bunch of different doors, including faith. And so if there's discontentment in your life, thanksgiving is probably part of the answer. And then the last piece is the life that we've signed up for is one that's dependence on trust in the Lord. And there's alternate stories out there. There are alternate stories out there. And if we're looking for a reason not to believe, we'll find it. And so if you're in an area where that's a dynamic that's playing out, grab a friend in the service, call them afterwards, come up and get prayer, do business with the Lord. But this is the life of trust that we're living, right? This whole thing that we're doing down here comes down to faith at the end of the line. It's faith that compels us into a life of love, radical love for God and radical love for people. And so let's just do some business with the Lord. If you need to get prayer about anything that was said, an area of your life that God's highlighting, then let's do that. We'll worship a couple, time, a couple songs, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. I will pray for us as we transition. Lord, I thank you for the story of Jesus. And I thank you, God, that we can read passages like this where even Jesus himself, God, was was not received in his hometown, God. And even Jesus standing there in the flesh before people doing amazing things and speaking with amazing authority, God. That there was just this, this story tells us that there's influences around us that would try to tell a different story, except for you're exceedingly good. God, you're always with us. You're committed to this world so much so that you died on a cross. And God, we can put our trust in you. God, I pray that the simplicity of your gospel, the simplicity of your love, the simplicity of following you with trust and an abandoned heart, God, would return to many in this time. God, and I pray that this would be a crew that runs the good race, God, the race that refuses to take it into our own control, refuses to do it in humanistic power, God, but just commits ourselves to you, is infatuated with Jesus, is lost in your goodness, and refuses to be, to be impacted or influenced by anything that would say anything to the contrary, God. I pray that this would be a church that is singular-minded, single-focused, wholehearted, and would refuse to be, re refuse any counterfeits, God, to the right or to the left. And so we give you the glory and the honor, and we ask you to move in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we worship.
Okay. I'd like to pray one thing. It's in my heart. Um, Father God, and I just pray for um, just all of us, Father, that we would not live a life like the, like the, the people in Jesus' town where Jesus was standing right there and they missed him. Lord, we want to see and we want to allow space for your miracles to happen in our life. And so in any way, Lord God, that we have agreed with the enemy, where we have allowed the second narrative to come and have a place and a place of landing, Lord God, in Jesus' name right now, we just want to give that to you. We want to surrender. We want to repent. We want to hand that to you, Jesus. Father God, we want to give every single place that the enemy would have to tempt us away from your narrative back to you. And right now, Father, we want to step in to the place where we can see where you're standing at any given point. Lord God, that you, we will be able to be so sensitive to your presence, Father God, that we would allow you to move how you want to move, where you want to move, Lord God. We want you in our life. We do not want to be um, blind to your presence. So, Lord, increase our faith levels. Lord God, we repent for the ways that we have tried to dictate and control the way that you move. And we just invite you, Father God. We just say yes to you and your ways again, to you and your narrative, to you and your truth, Father God. And so, Lord, we just declare that we don't want to do it the other way. We want to do it your way, God. Thank you, Father. And we worship you in this time. And if you just want to, yeah, as Ryan was saying, if you want to respond in any way, just come on up, get prayer, and just worship. In Jesus' name, amen.